Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, where we bring you weekly conversations with purpose-driven leaders. Our focus is to share meaningful conversations with purpose-driven people having a big social impact in our community. Our mission is to enable you to listen, connect, and grow. You can learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au. We talk about, you know, tasting good and doing good, but that good isn't just the social impact that we create for, you know, for teenagers. It's supply chain good. It's the good that we can do to try and build the social enterprise sector. It's the good that we can do through trying to, you know, trying to make a difference in, in our local community. There's, there's many, many types of good that we can do and, you know, environmental sustainability is absolutely part of that key as well. Welcome back to the podcast and terrific to have you with us as always. Well, those were the profound words of Beck Scott, who is the co-founder and CEO of Street, one of Australia's leading social enterprises. We picked up a lovely five-star review this week from Jenna DB, who says, such a fantastic lineup of guests, excellent interview skills, and truly inspiring topics. So thanks very much for that, Jenna. And if you do want to also uh, chip in and uh, give us a five-star iTunes review, just hop in the iTunes store, search for Humans of Purpose, and head to the ratings and review section and do your best. I've been thinking a bit lately about what is it that all our great Humans of Purpose guests have had in common uh, over time. And having a chance to really reflect on what they've said during our conversations, a recurring theme is that they're all strongly committed to personal growth and development and actively participate in programs, at least on an annual basis, to improve themselves, their skills and their capabilities to get where they want to go in their career and in life. Well, as winter is fast approaching and we're all equally disappointed by a lacklustre Game of Thrones season and finale, we might be asking ourselves, how can we get to a warmer climate but also embark on such a personal growth and development journey? Well, that's where the wonderful team at Mountains and Marathons come in. They want you to join them for a six-month leadership program set in sunny Honolulu to culminate by running the Honolulu Marathon as part of the Honolulu Marathon Leadership Program. The team are so committed to having you join them, they're actually going to pay for your flights to and from Hawaii to join them for this wonderful experience. This is an offer exclusive to Humans of Purpose subscribers. So if you do want to learn more, just head to mountainsmarathons.world slash Honolulu. I'll drop a link in the show notes for you to direct click through. And just head down to the inquiry form and just type in Humans of Purpose in the Where Did You Hear About Us section. As always, I want to send a special thank you and shout out to our, our Patreon supporters, Misha D and wife, Joel F, Stuart M and McCartan. Your ongoing support uh, each month has been tremendous for Humans of Purpose and helps us grow and perform each and every week. If you're loving the show and looking for a way to become a bit more involved, I do recommend also joining that great team and becoming a patron. Just head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. And by doing so, I'll thank you each week, but also give you priority access to all offers, competitions, and partner opportunities via guests and brands that connect with the podcast. And now for our guest for today. Well, what can I say about Beck Scott that you haven't already read or don't already know about her? She's a pioneer of the social enterprise sector in Victoria and certainly Australia. Street is doing wonderfully well and all its associated ventures. And I was really um, excited to have visited the new Cromwell Street site recently, which is host to a lovely garden, uh, facilities, event rooms, um, a cafe, and just really happy people lounging outside, enjoying the sun and gardening. Actually, when I walked in, the first person I saw was um, Beck outside watering some of the plants. So there you go for hands-on leadership and showing how it's done. 
Bex has been an inspiration to me over the years. I actually first met her back in, I think, 2015 when I was looking to leave the public service but didn't know what to do next. And this was in the early days when um, Street were over in uh, the hub, the, the first iteration of the hub over on, I think, Burke Street. And um, she was just very welcoming to me, uh, was happy to sit down um, with me, someone she didn't know, for a coffee, a chat, gave me a great tour of the um, street premises and the inner workings and machinations of strategy at that time. And I'm ever thankful for Beck because she was a real influence on me to um, work into the for-purpose space and to really find my feet in that sector. So look, it's a wonderful um, conversation with Beck, and I won't spoil it any further. Please enjoy. So, Beck, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. And um, we'd love to hear a little bit about your journey into uh, where you are today. Uh, take me as far back as you want to go and to whatever context suits you best. And really excited to hear about what, where you, how you got here today. Oh, where to start? That's a toughie. Um, look, I'll probably start with looking down a microscope uh, as a Year 10 student and my mind being absolutely blown away looking uh, and looking at a plant under a dissecting mic- uh, microscope and thinking that I just discovered a whole new world and this incredible whole universe that you see under a microscope. And that probably gave me very early, I think, a love of kind of art and biology, which uh, ended up kind of um, giving me the course I was going to take through university to become a plant biologist. But what I really wanted to be was a, a plant illustrator and biologist. Um, but I ended up taking quite a different path and ended up in science communication at the CSIRO for a decade. So <clears throat> I, I feel like I've had probably kind of 10 years in, in science and then veered what, what probably seems like a U-turn into social enterprise, you know, a decade ago. But in another sense, it was, you know, it's a continuation of a journey rather than, you know, than a, a left turn or a sharp, you know, sharp right turn as well. And just kind of reflecting, I guess, you know, 10 years on in social enterprise, you know, where I'm at and, you know, gearing up for the next decade. So that's exciting. Uh, that was uh, really concise. Not many people could sum up their, <laughs> their life to date in less than a minute, but you've just done that. <laughs> that's amazing. So you are today the CEO of Street, uh, one of Australia's best-known uh, social enterprises. I do like how you um, said that being a scientist and then going to social enterprise, that's a continuation rather than a deviation. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Everything I see is just a different, you know, different way of seeing the world and trying to solve problems. So certainly my science career at the CSIRO was very much around trying to get people to understand complex problems and work within an organization that was trying to solve those complex problems. So I feel like whatever, you know, whatever I've been doing, whether it's volunteering or, you know, in my, in my professional life, it's always been about trying to solve complex problems and, always has probably been a kind of a cross-disciplinary nature mm. to the work that I've done. I've always been most interested when you bring, you know, highly unlikely collaborators together, whether or not it's artists or scientists or, you know, in the case of a social enterprise, it's business people and, you know, non-profit people. Mm. And I think what you get at the interface of different disciplines and on the edges, you know, of different disciplines is actually where, you know, the interesting stuff happens. Oh, well, that's so, so well said. <laughs> So I love, yeah, I love the messiness or, or you know, when, when things start to, to merge together and you've got 
a very unusual set of collaborators. And if I if I think about you know even a decade at Street, you know my collaborators at the moment, for example, are poets and writers and photographers and creative people. <clears throat> so for me, it's really important to keep on getting the most kind of unlikely perspectives on whatever we're doing. And, you know, a, a poet's view on stopping youth homelessness mm. or a or a photographer's view and the way they see the world is, gonna, is always going to shed light on what we're doing and, and give those other perspectives. That's so well said. And I think um, – that science background and working within extreme degrees of complexity must have placed you really well to deal with social enterprise and to create a thriving social enterprise in what might be described as a sort of difficult, one of the more difficult forms of uh, organisation to run in this country today. <coughs> yeah, it's interesting. I think people have really come from, you know, a hybrid environment of a social enterprise. So often there's an there's an expectation that it can't be that different or it can't be that hard. Mm. Um, certainly I know that of the non-profit people who come into street, they might have come from youth services or, you know, social services and, and figure, well, how hard can it be? But, you know, the difference when you're trying to run a, you know, a multi-million dollar business at the same time, you know, making thousands and thousands of coffees every week mm. and meals every week, whilst you know bringing about social change for a young person that's been highly excluded and it, part of the challenge i think is in these environments that you're you're having to both do things with an incredibly fast metronome working in the business yep <clears throat> all of those interactions and that and the business pace is so incredibly fast but within you know within you know the social sector it's human change. It's slow. It takes time. It takes trust. It takes relationships. And particularly if you're talking about for people who have been highly excluded for most of their lives, um, this might be the first time that they're trying to build trust, you know, in a relationship. Mm. This might be the first male that they've worked with that hasn't physically abused them. It might be the first person, you know, first place that I feel like I can let my guard down and, and be me. So, so you know, you're working in this frenetic environment, particularly in hospitality. Mm. You know, we've chosen an in industry that's very, very fast-paced. You know, you only need to stand, you know, wherever the barista is in any cafe in the morning and know how, how fast those coffees are being pounded out. But we trust them with our life. <laughs> we totally do. <laughs> we wouldn't start a day without them. But, you know, what's happening in amongst all of that fast, fast pace is an almost imperceptible social change. And... It might be the first day a young person feels like they've done something right. It might be the first day a young person will smile. It might be the first day you've trusted someone. All of those tiny little imperceptible changes, you've got to you've got to be able to spot those mm. in in the chaos. So it's it's like trying to find the tiny little signal in amongst the noise. And often I don't think, you know, business, you know, you're focused on this you know, sole thing that you're doing often, a product or service that you're offering, but you're not you're not li listening for all those other very, very, very faint signals in in that noise. And and I think what it takes is, you know, a team that's got incredible business savvy, but also phenomenal emotional you know emotional mm -hmm. intelligence mm -hmm. as well, that you just often don't have to have to quite the same degree in you know just in a, in a plain business. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe businesses don't think enough about social progress and social change. And I think definitely trust, if you look at trust across the country, um, it's low in a whole range of our institutions, but one place where it's actually on the increase is in charities and sort of um, 
organizations that put altruism and sort of human relationships and um, developing relationships first are sort of growing in um, trustworthiness. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, organizations who do this stuff well are thinking deeply about their own people and and growing their own people and and they're probably thinking deeply about their customers Mm. as well. But the complexity in a social enterprise environment where you've got this kind of multiple stakeholder accountability, you know, you've got to get your resources for a start and normally you can't just rock up to a bank and take out a loan. (laughs) So you've got this, you know, plethora of funders and grantors and investors. And so you've got, you've got kind of many multitudes more, you know, relationships. And, and of course, you've got your beneficiaries. So, so we've got our standard, you know, customers and our staff, like any typical business, but you've got all of these other layers and layers of, of relationships that are in there. So, and you've got accountability to all of those, you know, different stakeholders. So the complexity, I think, from the outside often looks not that great until you're in it and and you realize that you're you're having to manage far you know your human skills need yeah. to be you know kind of on steroids <laughs> i like what you said earlier about businesses thinking fast in terms of progress roi and runs on the board but um often not-for-profits or social enterprises um think a lot slower because they're thinking about human change yeah and when you're thinking about say a young person gaining confidence or skills or trust um enough to lift themselves in a measurable way out of disadvantage that's not a one or two year process totally. we're talking 10 15 20 years aren't we absolutely and particularly when we're talking about you know, for us, our first young people come to us at 16. So we work with 16 or 24 year olds. But, you know, a lot of abuse and neglect um, could have happened to you by the time, you know, you turn 16. Mm. So, it, you know, it's not uncommon at all for us to be having, you know, young people coming to us from many, many years in prison or many years bouncing in and out of the foster care system, you know, in and out of the you know, homelessness and, and off the streets. So, so, 16, you know, 16 that we get a young person is almost, it's not an early intervention often. It's, a, you know, often quite late and late intervention. You're mm. talking about young people who, you know, might have well been taken off their families as toddlers, mm. um, dropped out of school very early. So all those kind of safety nets that we take for granted, our, our families and schools and, and those kind of institutions that might be there to support often haven't been there. Yeah. So certainly you're right, you know, by the time you, you come to us, there could have been many, many years of of um, estrangement or marginalisation from a community and, and you can't change that within weeks or months or, you know, certainly not in days. But it's interesting because we think a bit about systems failure and, you know, um, part of the role of the street is to, you know, help young people to develop and to do a lot of the things that maybe should have been done by other parts of society for them or other institutions. And I read, I think it was an Age article from last year, that you saved um, uh, the government up to $16 million through your work. Yeah, it's funny. We, <clears throat> we've saved quite a lot of money and particularly state and, and federal, um, whether or not that being in housing services or mental health services or, you know, kids going less to, you know, accident and emergency or, you know, or, or new start allowances. So, so there's many ways that we save the government money. But <clears throat> having said that, we, you know, 0.7 you know, percent of our funding has come through governments. Mm. So, it, you know, it, it's just it's it's the you know it's the slither of the slither yeah. of the pie. It's, it's like so a tiny, very, um, dissatisfying layer of icing on top of a great <laughs> pie. Maybe <laughs> it's the couple of crumbs once yeah. you've finished everything. Yeah. 
Um, that's not that's to say that's, that's actually quite unbelievable to hear you say that. Yeah, yeah. and look, I I mean, I've had conversations over many years because it's it's not an ideal situation. It's ideal in one sense that certainly means that we haven't become dependent on government. So it's it's allowed us, you know, it, it's kind of forced us to be fairly resourceful. Mm. The other upside, I guess, is what it's done is it's. We've been able to innovate, I think, and often do things in quite a different way. Yeah. Um, certainly, I know many of our youth workers and social workers, when they come to street, they feel quite liberated because it's like, oh, you mean we can try different things and do things <laughs> our way? And I'm like, yeah. Um, you know, our programs aren't set, you know, by the government or, you know, we, we don't get to – no one the, – the tail isn't wagging the dog at street. Yeah. You know, what we're getting is – an ability to, to say, hey, we think this, you know, some of the stuff that's happening at the moment is really broken. What are our responses to that? So, How should we address this problem? Yeah, I think yeah. we, you know, we get to innovate probably with a lot more freedom because we've, you know, we've got our own revenue sources. We're 75% self-funded now, but, and we've already got a level of freedom, but certainly, you know, these next three years as we try and get to 100% self-funded, you know, that, that freedom and that, you know, ability to keep trying new things just continues to, to elevate as well. And maybe that's giving you a lot more power to do more good and be, you know, such a strong option in the space as opposed to um, as opposed to uh, not-for-profits that might not have that kind of innovative capacity in a lot of senses. Look, I think some of it certainly is um, just who we are as people. You know, we, we tend to like trying new things and, and we, we like to – kind of tread new path you know we don't we don't we like to kick our own butts well it's you know seems, we just um, it seems that way also just because the diversity of the, the faculty that you've got there your team yeah um, you know you talk about a poet you've got uh what were the other ones oh poets and writers <laughs> and i mean anyone who's got a hospital organization has got lots and lots of you know uh, you know s- struggling artists yeah. who are trying to make their way in hospital yeah, as yeah. well and look one of the things i think you know i i I love kicking our butt. I love it when we we keep lifting the bar and keep going. Imagine, imagine if we could do that. Do you think we can? And you know, unless the goal is scaring us, you know, I, I don't think we've been audacious enough. And so, if I was probably, you know, typifying the culture of the organisation, there's a level of braveness and courage, and you know, to be, to try some audacious mm. things, mm. and no, not in a reckless way, mm. not in a, you know crazy crazy way that that you know you're betting you know every decision you're betting the house on mm. but certainly i think um we've got both a, you know a brave team and a brave board which which has allowed us i think some you know some real freedom to try some stuff and so a significant change for you guys or an up, upswing in uh progress was cromwell street talk to me a bit about that and how that sort of shaped uh things going forward for you guys yeah look cromwell street wasn't part of the plan. <laughs> so Cromwell Street came about um, because of an incredibly generous um, benefactor, Jeff Harrison. Jeff um, hadn't hadn't ever kind of known about social enterprise and stumbled upon us after reading an Age article that I did back in 2012. And long story short, what, he got to know us a little bit and then bought us this incredible property in Collingwood. And he he didn't tell us he was going to buy it for us. He he said, you know, hey, I'm buying this for you. Uh, go and change as many lives as you can in this building for the next 50 years. Oh, wow. So that was just extraordinary for us for a number of reasons. One, it gave us an ability to, to really try and scale the things that we'd already done. But also, too, I think the thing that we hadn't realised is 
how much more connected to place we would feel. Yes. You know, when, when you know, if you think about our first business model, it was this, you know, tiny little collection of food carts and it was a, you know, what I would say was almost an ephemeral organisation. You've got these tiny little carts, you know, often casual leasing of a month at a time, moving, your, you know, you're having to build your cafe or, your, you know, your business every day to get it in place on the streets. So an organisation that certainly felt like it was – it was airborne mm. and didn't have kind of a sense of place very strongly, I don't think. And what happened, I think, when, you know, not only we got out of our cart model, but we also went into, you know, a place that was ours for 50 years. Not only did it allow us to kind of think forward 50 years, but what it did is get give us an ability to think about the place in relation to the last 50,000 years. Sure. So it allowed us to look back as well because – the gift of the place, you know, it was like getting an inheritance of stories and time. Mm. You know, what we had is a building that was 150 years old. You know, it was a building that was there before there were trams in Melbourne. It was a building that was there before there was an AFL. You know, you, you think about this, you know, little old manor sitting in the middle of a swampy, muddy patch in Collingwood in, you know, surrounded by you know, people who were in a really bad situation of, you know, incredible destitution in Collingwood um, back in the 1800s. So it gave us a sense of time um, but also, too, that that sense of responsibility of custodianship of land. You know, we've been given a piece of land for 50 years. How do we make sure that we honour that, you know, trying to do as much mm. social good we can for young people, but how do we also leave the land better than when we found it. And and we carry on that tradition of treading softly that, that's been happening, you know, 50,000 years before us. I think that's a wonderful uh, response. And I, I just remember going to visit you guys at Cromwell Street for the first time. Obviously, we'd met uh, many years ago before, but seeing you, um, when we arrived in the morning, I think we were there at about 8.15, you were actually at the front watering the plants <laughs> in front of the sign. You'll always find me watering plants and, and so, pottering in the garden. That's just so <laughs> I found very emblematic of your hands-on style of leadership. You don't present as somebody who has to sit behind a big mahogany desk. And kind of, <laughs> God, no. You're, you're, you're a lead by example person and I remember turning to my colleague who I drove in with and I said that's the CEO <laughs> look you'll you'll very often find me in the you know daggiest clothes with my you know with my boots on yep. and You're and you know after that as yeah well. totally <laughs> I mean you're never going to get me out of the garden you know my my blood runs with you know plant juice rather than blood I think it's you know I, I'm very much a plant biologist at heart and always will be but I think also too you know, that that criticality of getting, you know, in a city in particular, that connection still to the environment. And that's that's one of the things I think that I've I've really been so grateful about having that site, that what it gave us is a tiny little patch of land that you could start to think, you know, you could start to bring together that sense of, you know, people and planet and performance. You know, yeah. for us there's there's, you know, three big kind of key impact areas. And even though we've been known very much for, you know, our social impact, you know, mm -hmm. very much, you know, we're, we're very avid environmentalists as well and, and that comes, you know, very much from my love of, you know, the planet. And so for us what it's done is it's, it's kind of accelerated our work and we talk about, you know, tasting good and doing good, mm -hmm. but that good isn't just 
the social impact that we create for you know for teenagers it's supply chain good it's mm. the good that we can do to try and build the social enterprise sector it's the good that we can do through trying to you know trying to make a difference in in our local community there's there's many many types of good that we can do and you know, environmental sustainability is absolutely part of that key as well. And just having a space, I feel, where you can be who you are as an organisation um, across a few different functionaries, like the cafe, you had the, the garden, I think you're running some workshops or classes there, there's a meeting room upstairs and then there's office and people walking in and out. I love to see that in action. And do you think that's been a good thing for your culture? Yeah, absolutely. What it's allowed, I think, is us to be able to bring in a larger group of people that you know, can be part of what we're doing. So certainly, you know, if you go into any of the meeting rooms and see the booked out spaces and events, can be anyone from, you know, people on a weekend having a wedding and sharing, you know, really precious moments at, at street through to large corporates who, you know, book out our space every month to do their strategic planning or, mm. you know, executive team meetings. Mm. So, so it's a really broad group of people that can engage with us in different ways now. And I think, you know, we've, we've, We've got a depth to many of those relationships now that isn't just this, you know, single either funder or customer relationship that there's actually, you know, could be dozens of things that you're doing with us. Um, we, you know, we could have a supplier-customer relationship. We could have a funder, you know, funder-beneficiary relationship. We could we could be collaborators and doing an innovation project together. Um, you know, at the moment we're doing some really interesting projects um, trying to see whether or not you know what it would take from a consumer psychology perspective to get far more people going across into reusable cups and you know keep cup um, obviously in a in an industry like ours the incredible waste that you get you oh, know when amazing. you see all those people around the city with their takeaway coffee cups you think about all of that as landfill Beck, and I, I feel that soon they'll be shamed out of doing that oh it's already um totally pretty high levels of shame yeah, but you've still only got about, you know, it's less than 5% of the market is using a reusable cup. Is that really the Yeah, stat? so wow. it's still a – so those of us who do that can't believe that people – you know, more people wouldn't be doing it. And yeah. you can certainly see a rise yep. for sure. Um, we're lucky enough to have about 20% of our customers across our different sites um, using, you know, a reusable cup and often a keep cup. I'd be too scared to go to the street without a reusable <laughs> cup. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those things that, you know, any of these behaviour changes that we want on mass, you know, create need a tipping point. You need enough people that are starting to to do that new behaviour and kind of digging right down into the consumer psychology. So at the moment, you know, we're working with consumer psychologists, um, uh, environmentalists, product developers, you know, a whole bunch of people in the mix. Oh, and, and 40 executive MBA students from RMIT. Really? Really digging down into how do we reduce single-use packaging and, partic- you know, particularly coffee cups and, and um, you know, bottled water and beverages. How do we go from 20% to, you know, 100%? Um, and and how do we then whatever we're learning in that in that process in that you know across those months how do we then try and scale that to not just street but other you know the rest of the hospitality industry as well? I was pretty excited to try one of your um, I don't know if it's a new innovation but your uh, coffee pods. Yeah, look, we we said we wouldn't as a coffee roaster. We said we'd never go into coffee um, coffee pods until we could do it in a you know completely biodegradable way. Yep. Um, it's still far from ideal, you know. Single, you know, single serve coffee, even in a biodegradable 
um, vessel isn't ideal. No. Um, so it's it's kind of still still something that I think is a lot 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 better than the alternatives that are there. And we we, we wanted to create an alternative, mm. um, but yeah, I think. That's you know every single part of our business, every single part of our supply chain. You yeah. need you need to be thinking about that. Is there a different way of doing it? Yeah. What's in the marketplace? How do you shift the marketplace? It's the same way I sort of feel with that sort of pod decision. Is like um, companies promoting e cigs over cigarettes. Yeah, like, it's less bad, but yeah. isn't good. It's well, still, it's, yeah, it's still far from not, ideal. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's still good. It's better than the alternative in a lot of ways. I think it's so. tricky. I mean, so many of these decisions that people are making are ones of convenience. Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, you only need to go into any supermarket and see how many, you know, prepackaged single serve meals are in yep. there. You, you know, of course, you know, there's busy people and busy parents, you know, trying to, you know, trying to get through a day. But, you know, we've we've actually got to make really hard choices yep. as humans about what what we value and and you know the footprint of our lives. And you know, the same goes with the footprint of our organisations. You know that that scrutinizing every decision that we're making through that lens of you know is it the if we all did it around the world you know would we be here for thousands of generations not just this you know this next you know this next little while before we you know totally trash the planet and i think for me that's where i i feel probably the, you know this last year it would be fair to say that i've been back at the same crossroads as i was you know a decade ago trying to work out Am I in climate science or am I in social enterprise? And, you know, the, I, I think there's a real existential crisis that we've got, you know, as a species that we are we are creating so much devastation, um, you know, in the rest of the world that for me it's been very much this um, trying to work out, you know, is there a way of bringing those two worlds together mm. um, and trying to create an organisation that, that can be – Leading in both social and environmental work, and and also too, you know, obviously in a, in an industry like hospitality, it's a really wasteful industry. So knowing that, you know, if if you're trying to innovate in environmental sustainability as well, you've got an opportunity to to impact a greater, you know, impact a greater industry as well. Hopefully, well, you, so you seem to be doing an amazing job of tackling both at the same time. Maybe elevating one and sort of doing what you can with the other. But I am curious. You, you talked a bit uh, before we started about um, how you make decisions. I always find that I need to do a lot of artistic exploration of whatever I'm thinking at the time, and so um, anyone who kind of knows me well knows that that it, you know the, the back of my desk is this very very tall group of um, you know pile of expandable books um, many years ago Kate found me these incredible Chinese calligraphy books when she was traveling through China and I bought a couple home for me and and I've used them brought a couple rather I should say uh, home for me and I've used them ever since and they're it, they're these gigantic expandable books that go for you know over five meters each and what I tend to do is it's it's almost like a stream of consciousness where I'm exploring an idea for a really long time and maybe over kind of many months. And in that exploration, what I need to be able to do is see the different connections between unlikely things. So I might have a book that's on a theme. So, um, you know, say it's trying to make a key decision, but there'll also be some other books on some other things that I'm thinking about at the moment. And what I tend to do is then surround like my whole kind of view with 
all of that information and then try and connect dots that I might not have otherwise seen. So, sure. so it's a very, it's a very visual um, it's like way. Mind mapping. Mind mapping yeah, it's bit. like it's like mind mapping under lots of different themes over time. Yeah, and trying to make visual connections between things that I that I wouldn't have otherwise seen. So my ideal world actually would just be one giant, you know, whiteboard that you could forever be, you know, connecting things. And it's quite lovely actually about um, probably three years ago for Christmas, Kate was so sick of all my shit being in her study that she ended up (laughs) for my Christmas present, buying me the tiniest little garden shed, uh, which I turned into an art studio. And it's this, you know, two metres by four metre, tiny little shed that sits beside our house um, and it's my thinking space. So in there, you know, every bit of the walls is full of things that I'm thinking at the moment and there's an incredible amount of drawing um, and it's my – I often think things through by drawing. So there'll be lots and lots of plants drawn all over the walls, lots of um, lots of photography and also a lot of kind of ink and pencil drawings that I will have been doing. But often it's a very um, – yeah, it's a very artistic way of figuring out the next steps and connecting your ideas. And so, so it sounds like you're much more of a visual thinker. Than totally. Written. Yeah, and the other thing is too that i i tend to I tend to think out loud. So I'll, I'll I like the process of talking to other people and exploring an idea. I, I don't ever tend to sit in a vacuum by myself and think and think and think and then come out and go ta-da, this is what I thought. <laughs> you know, it's a very social way of kind of drawing say, people into conversations. The, the garden shed is at, at the risk of sounding like you're going into a cave for a long period and you'll emerge with all the answers. <laughs> yeah, no no no, it's it's not quite like that. It's it's a very iterative process and it's, you know, the, Kate and I have this funny moment pretty much every Monday morning where, you know, she reminds me on the way, you know, as we're both going to work, she reminds me that, you know, all the ideas that I've had over the weekend I don't need to share with the whole team. Um, you know, maybe just choose one of the ideas and, and it's even worse when we're on holidays. You know, there'll be a kind of endless stream of ideas. But I tend to find that it, that if I'm thinking creatively or I'm in liminal spaces, often kind of outside my normal context, mm. it's where I'm kind of looking back at something or seeing something through another culture or another discipline um, that I'll make connections that I often haven't thought of before. So, so it's quite a so it's a combination of you know visual um, artistic exploration of an idea, but then socialising that really fast and exploring mm. that in with with people you know I I tend to find you know if I was having a conversation with a poet it would often be one word that was used in a really different context that might start a whole new you know thought bubble that I'd explore for sometimes months you know and it's just it's often the double meaning of a word that it's it's kind of layers of meaning that yeah. o- that often help me kind of make an association. So so yeah, you know, it doesn't make sense for me just to hang out with a b- bunch of social entrepreneurs <laughs> and talk about stuff. You know, I want I want really different views in the mix. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so um, so with that process, that's one process. Do you have other things that you do to bounce ideas around or sort of help you make decisions? In the early days. I think because it was such a high stress environment in in kind of startup, and you know I couldn't have ever told you whether or not we were going to survive that month. You know, at best it might have been three months. You know, I don't know if, I don't know if we we're going to be alive in three months' time as an organisation. I think what I had to get really good at doing is is being very very calm under pressure, and you know I don't I don't get the speed wobbles easily, mm. but 
you know, that that need to find ways of staying kind of grounded was really critical. And I'd, and I'd, I'd learned to do that quite well in my science career as well, but it, nothing kind of prepared me for the complexity of social enterprise and just how, you know, how hard it would be to yeah. build this damn thing. Yeah. And so I've got quite good at almost giving myself like mental shortcuts to get into certain states of mind really mm. fast. Mm. And so I trained myself quite well um, with the help of Kate, who's a clinical psychologist, to use either pieces of music to get into certain thought patterns yep. really fast. So I've got a couple of key pieces of music, um, you know, from a couple of composers. Mm. Luke Howard is a, is a Melbourne composer that mm. I listen to a lot. And same with um, Ludovico Anaudi, who's, who's an Italian composer. I've got a couple of their songs where, you know, within seconds of putting on that song, I can be in a really different headspace. So I can change kind of the, the megahertz that my brain's kind of operating at so uh, and like change modes. Trigger kind of environment. Yeah. Stimulus. Yeah, totally. So I, I can do that really fast, kind of switch between between modes because one of the challenges in this kind of job is, you know, I might be writing a grant application to try and save the organisation, but I might also be, you know, in a meeting with an investment banker in a totally different mode or, you know, working in the garden or with a young person. So so I need I need to keep on changing modes really seamlessly and, and you know, most of you know, big part of my job is solving other people's problems and letting them get on with their mm. their job. So, you know, sometimes it's phenomenally tedious and, and you know, might be quite manual other times it might you know, and quite operational. Other times it needs to be highly strategic and looking forward twenty or thirty years. So yeah, finding ways to do to kind of switch, you know, finding triggers to switch modes has been really important. And probably the other thing is lots of mindfulness. You know, I've got a, a number of different kind of quite active mindfulness exercises that I used to do. So when Street's office, for example, used to be at Donkey Wheel House uh, on Burke Street, we were there for many years. But I had a mindfulness, mindfulness exercise that I'd do every day coming off the train. And I don't know if you know, kind of coming off Burke Street, mm. you know, off the Southern Cross Station, there's yep. those enormous stairs, oh, the flight man. of stairs kind of down onto yep. Spencer Street. They're always super crowded. Yeah. It's crazy kind of getting off there in mm. the morning. But I'm um, I'm a real lover of, you know, lover of flying. I, you know, used to hang glide and used to paraglide. And what I did is – I could switch modes really fast and did kind of a really active mindfulness where every every morning when I went down those stairs, I was actually flying. So I could give myself the sensation very quickly of flying down the stairs into the office, but it was a calming and a centering using the physical environment that was around me and kind of key places that I'd be going every way to kind of help with that trigger. So I've probably over the years, I guess, kind of just created – multiple ways of doing that, whether or not it's music or spaces or, you know, or art to be able to quite quickly, yeah, centre myself and and not kind of lose the plot. (laughs) It's amazing. So where where do you um, go to learn about these kind of things? I mean, you're clearly quite an optimised person in how you do things and approach problems and look after yourself. Are you a reader? Are you a podcast listener? How do you gain knowledge and integrate it? Look, I'm quite lucky that I'm married to a clinical psychologist. (laughs) So Kate certainly, um, you know, a lot of the mindfulness exercises, she's either recorded for me or hunted down for me and particularly the very active ones. So, you know, I've got a public transport, you know, I've got a tram mindfulness session that I do. I've got got a train one. I've got a walking one. I've got a stair one. So, so, um, 
and she can make me kind of bespoke exercises, you know. So if I know that I, I, and this is the normal way that I get to work on public transport and there's a great big set of stairs that I go through, you know, to go down to get there, she can she can make me, you know, record something that I that I can use. Um, but probably yeah, I'm a big podcast listener. I, you know, always listen to lots of TEDx talks and mm. things and so people that really inspire me. Mm. So I do lots of, you know, you know, soul lifting and, you know, inspire, you know, get inspiration from other yeah. people that are doing similar sorts of stuff. Um, Do you have and, any favourites you want to shout out? Oh, it's uh, – I mean, I can't – I'm just trying to think of the just hundreds of TED Talks I would have listened to over the years. I'm trying to think of any kind of standout. It, it's probably where where there's people, I think, where there might have been a new conceptualisation. I, I quite like – when I when someone builds a framework that kind of makes sense to me, so you know, one that that certainly feels like it captures both kind of human progress and environmental sustainability is Kate Rayworth's mm. you know donut donut economy stuff. That oh, that yeah, just really made sense to me yeah. when um, I I often find that you know the the economic theory and philosophy that I've read over time just doesn't ever seem to be holistic enough. So I remember when I first, you know, saw her stuff going, yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm. Um, and I so it tends to be where people have conceptualised, you know, bringing different strands or kind of, you know, adding complexity back in, you know, back into the equation mm. and not just hiving off, you know, you know, s- social here, environmental there, yep. you know. Yep. Financial here, you know, for me, all of these things are so intricately connected. We've we've got to do far better at bringing those things back together again. Integrated approaches that sort of um, uplift simplicity, um, draw simplicity from real complexity. Totally, yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, That that's that's probably been a really consistent theme across everything. You know, in my science life as well, you're trying to grapple with really complex problems, but you still need a way to to be able to conceptualise them and communicate them in quite a simple way that, you know, people can grab hold of them and, and, and know how, you know, what they've got to do differently. At the end of the day, nothing changes unless we get behaviour change with any of these things. So until, until we can break down those concepts to the, sto- you know, to the stories of why we've got to do things differently or the stories of how the world should be looking or, you know, what do we want of the future mm. – I think at the end of the day, you know, we've also got to be able to do what we've been doing for, you know, tens of thousands of years and sit around a fire and have those conversations about how the world should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have any books that you're reading at the moment that you would want to recommend or shout out or any books over the past couple of years that have really meant something to you? I've done quite a bit of reading just this last couple of years on the history of Melbourne. It's funny, you know, when I arrived in this city, Kind of a decade ago, you know, I didn't have any roots here. It wasn't where I grew up. But something magical happened, I think, when we were gifted Cromwell to kind of give me that sense of place like I talked about earlier. And what I felt like I needed to do is go back and read the history of of the place, you know, of this place. So, um, you know, doing a lot more research into the Wurundjeri and, you know, cool, you know the, uh, the Kulin Nation, the tribes of the Kulin mm. Nations and – and what life was like for them before, you know, European settlement. And so I've done probably quite a bit more research trying to educate myself about place. Um, I will always, on my bedside table, there will always be some, you know, secret life of plants sorts of things. <laughs> so, um, 
there's a book that I want to read, Sophie Cunningham's new book on on trees. Um, I think is you know promises her her writing on Melbourne I think has been really interesting but I'm really interested to read her her new book that's just come out on trees so that's on my wish list um, and I, I heard her recently interviewed on Radio National and I I, I know that's going to be one that I really enjoy because I really enjoy her writing yeah. um, so that yeah there will always be stuff on plants at the moment. I've, I've been reading so many books on mycology, so I have a very, very big bunch of um, books by the mycologist Paul Stamets. Oh, on I heard a podcast with him recently. He's amazing. Really interesting. I, I'm really interested particularly in, you know, urbanisation and how, you know, if we've, if we've got 80% of the world's planet, li- you know, living in, you know, living in cities, mm. we've got to get clever at how we do cities. Mm. But I'm particularly interested in the ecology of cities and how we create livable cities and and that kind of deep connectedness to place and and fungus gets overlooked a lot oh, you know I the connection the between you know well they're actually the world's largest living organisms yeah. you know so you, you can have you know fungi that is you know many 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 kilometers um, in size and. And it's all of that kind of unseen. It's it's all those connections that are happening underneath our feet mm. um, that that are slow and invisible to us. That that actually keeps nu- nutrients recycling. That helps us break down. Yeah. Um, so I think what we've got to learn, particularly in waste systems, from you know from looking at what's beneath our feet. So yeah, I've been doing lots of mycology textbook reading so and i know that sounds really boring but i've probably got five textbooks that i've read recently on fungus oh well i think it's fascinating because i think um the way they work in networks and the fact that there's yeah, a totally. huge, huge i heard some extreme number i don't want to quote it because i'll probably get it wrong but it's a significant amount of the biomass on the planet earth is mycelium totally yeah 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 absolutely uh, it's everywhere and yeah. often all connected and i you know when i did my science degree you know back in the the early 90s, certainly we weren't learning in, in plant biology about how trees talk to themselves. You, you know, a, a tree was a, was a you know, single entity that, yes, you know, yes, was surrounded and was in, as part of an ecosystem, but certainly, you know, our understanding of the ways that plants communicate with each other um, I think has just really grown in this last couple of decades. And so that really interests me, you know, that that sense of um, connectedness and interconnectedness of everything. Mm. Um, you know, I certainly remember as a young scientist, you know, you know, Lovelace's, um, you know, work on Guy, the Gaia hypothesis and the interconnectedness mm. of all things, that made sense. But I think we've learnt so much more even this last kind of two decades since I, you know, since I was at university, in in plants and how those connectedness between, you know, humans and animals, mm. you know, humans and other animals, mm. and and plants, you know, interact, and I think that's one of the things. You know, my dad's a beekeeper, and I just can't conceive, you know, of the criticality of the things that we often think are insignificant the fact that we take for granted that you know our food keeps on being grown and arrives in our supermarkets but you know the bees and the criticality of Mm. of pollination and all of those kind of ecosystem services that happen that we haven't factored into our economies when we're when we're putting a value on things that we're never you know the the price that we're paying for things never reflects all of those things those ecosystem services and so i'm really interested in you know and that's why i'm interested you know in, in that 
in Kate Raworth's research yeah. around how do we value those things in an economic model um, that allows us to be protecting and preserving and and yeah, thinking about these things for many generations. Yeah, I feel the the idea of a post GDP number that's a bit more holistic and sort of takes into account um, the social and environmental value of things that are vital to human flourishing um, is is really going to be. Um, we're going to see more and more of that in the next few years. And hopefully, I think Kate Raworth's work is really, you know, important to that. But hopefully um, there's something that um, different cities and uh, and countries can agree on and sort of all start to put to use and something that works well together would be great. Yeah. It would be nice if we could, in the West, give ourselves – the scale of the kick up the butt that we actually need. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, the thing that always scares me is that we we take these ideas and these theories, but we still, at the end of the day, want to live our same yeah. little convenient We're life. We're to confine them to theories that sit yeah. on the bookshelf. And we just have to so radically rethink, you know, our personal footprints, mm. the impact of the stuff that's invisible around us. I think that's one of the things that, you know, for me, I've t- probably tried to do a lot more in my personal life but also at street is thinking about the all of those kind of supply chain um the invisible things you know that that all those people that you know might be enslaved to bring you know to bring you your your modern day life and it's that stuff i think that that we've got to get far better at not saying well this is this is what i do in my day job over here doing this but then i still go home to my you know my lifestyle that is grotesque when you think about it, mm. whether, you know, the the just absolute voracious appetite that we've got for, yeah, waste. you know, waste and fossil fuels and anything that's non-renewable. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd love Street to be able to find way stronger ways to communicate behaviour change mm. and, and how all of those kind of simple actions that we take every day that we not, might not be thinking about actually those add up across a lifetime and, and you know, obviously your purchase are, purchases are a really big part of that but mm. all of those kind of decisions that we're making that at the time might not seem big but you aggregate them across a life and, and they are really big. So obviously a big part of your work going forward is going to be those behaviour change research and action projects. What else are you excited about that's going to be happening at Street, given that you've just turned 10 and uh, <laughs> lots, lots of momentum of what's happening? I think we'll stay certainly in hospitality for this next decade, but I, I'm really interested in what happens when you, you start to build kind of precinct or place-based approaches Um to, to solving complex issues. And so where I'd really love to see us work is is kind of in a co-located way with some other really high-performing social enterprises. And, you know, at the moment, if you're a young person coming to street, you know, you can you can end up kind of starting off a career in, you know, baking or roasting or, you know, barista, but only a fraction of the young people that come to us actually want those careers. Mm. The you know the the sad reality is that most of them don't have other options. So they've you know what we've done is we've chosen an in industry where the skills are, f- are transferable. So you know you learning how to be a barista or work front of house is a really good stepping stone into yeah. other career paths. But what we would love to see is so many you know, other enterprises and so many pathway options for a young person. And at the moment, you know, it's still a pretty lumpy sector. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's there's only so many kind of pathways that you could take as a young person. And, and what I'd really love to see is 
us get really closely aligned and and co-located with you know other amazing enterprises that we could we could have our young people move into as well. So we don't want to run those enterprises, but what I would love to see is us build maybe a larger youth team and you might come in the front door of street um, and but there's many pathways you can take where our youth team might be might be kind of bigger and stronger and be able to plug into kind of other enterprises that might not have that wraparound support. There's very few social enterprises that still have probably kind of the level of um, intensity that we can provide with a you know with a team of psychologists, youth workers, and social workers. So that's been incredibly valuable, I think, to get the change that we have for young people. Um, so I'd love to see us, yeah, start to do kind of far greater partnership work, and and particularly if it could be kind of precinct work that we start to to build some really significant kind of place based responses. I I find a lot of inspiration from a couple of you know projects around the world that I've seen that have done that. Certainly, um, you know, before we started Street, we visited quite a lot of social enterprises mm. overseas that were a big inspiration. And there's some other ones that I really want to visit in this you know this next couple of years that are, that are taking those approaches. Do you want to name any of the ones that you visited, or? Yeah, we we visited some really interesting stuff, particularly throughout um, Asia. There was some really interesting startup stuff um, where you had you know, enterprises that had quite a diversified portfolio uh, that was place-based. So there was a group called the Baluka School of Life um, in southern Thailand and it was this group of very unsuspecting people who after the the tsunami happened in 2004, there were all these young children, Thai children, who were orphaned uh, overnight. And so they were an orphanage who essentially – um, became a large social enterprise with lots of different um, pathway options for the young people that they were now caring for. And so they had a farm and a hotel and um, they just happened to run into the man, in, a professor in Germany who had set up the entrepreneur um, entrepreneurship kind of curriculum that started f- from three years, uh, three years of age in preschools, you know, in <laughs> Germany. And they co-opted him to kind of help them kind of create this really interesting ecosystem of social enterprises. There's another similar precinct in the Philippines called the Enchanted Farm. Um, there's another great organisation that I want to visit in um, in Toronto. So there's some really interesting precincts around the world where I think you're starting to see, you know, ecosystems of social enterprises being created. And in, in my mind, you know, everything that I think of is always always comes back to an ecosystem. How sure, do you build a really sure. strong forest ecosystem that's mm. got, you know, lots of big strong trees in it that are creating, you know, shelter and shade for the next layer down mm. in that ecosystem. Mm. But you've got all of these new seedlings kind of coming through and these really fertile environments. So, you know, the other thing too, Obviously, as a, as you know, ten years on, we've learnt some stuff. So, helping build you know a greater you know sector that's vibrant and that's learning and and can iterate quite fast and hopefully not make the same mistakes. You know, we've closed a lot of stuff. We've failed at so many things. So it's quite you know remarkable that we're still here. But you know, there's stuff that hopefully would save you know that we've learnt that we could share that other people 
may kind of save some heartache mm. <laughs> from learning the hard way. Mm. I might just close on actually that, that question of um, the state of social enterprise, you know, where we are today in Victoria and Australia. I mean, Street's name comes up a lot. It's a very successful social enterprise who gives a crap at times. Um, uh, thank you to an extent. Um, are we in a healthy place for social enterprise or what, what needs to change or happen to solidify the sector? Look, 10 years on... The nice thing is that most, you know, many more people know what a social enterprise is. Mm. So, of course, there's still debates around the definition. Mm. <laughs> but certainly I don't need to spend, you know, the first half an hour of every meeting I go into, say, with a you know, corporate person to explain what it is. Yeah. And certainly same, same goes with government. Um, we're seeing some really interesting work, I think. We're seeing... You know, certainly the the startup environment. There's you know so many more social you know entrepreneurs out there mm. than there were a decade ago. Um, it's it's still very lumpy. So you know, if if I think once again going back to that kind of ecosystem idea, there's not a lot of tall trees in the ecosystem. Mm. Um, there's a lot in the startup environment, mm. and then what happens? You know, if you you take us for example, you know, I'd say we're probably a mid tier tree at this stage. You know, we've got some real issues getting access to the right types of capital mm. at the right time. So we've had a lot of different types of capital, whether or not it's impact investment or philanthropy or crowdfunding. You know, we've had to get quite resourceful to get the right type of capital to you know at the right time. And and so you've still got kind of lumpy parts of the ecosystem where there's not the resources that you need, or philanthropy hasn't quite got where it needs to mm. get. So. Um, same, you know, same obviously with um, with impact investment. So, I feel like there's still it's still lumpy, but we're getting better at starting to network, at creating structures where we can gather and learn, you know, more frequently together. Um, we're we're getting a lot more interaction, I think, between the more established social enterprises and what we're seeing, I, th I think, quite excitingly is, is more social procurement. Mm. Obviously, the, the larger you get as an organisation, the more, you know, you, the biggest your supply chain is. Mm. So, so just our ability to do our own social procurement, you know, we, we've got 30 social enterprises and B Corps in our supply chain mm. uh, and that'll, that'll grow rapidly. But I, th I think about the difference in government, you know, government policy just this last, two years, you know, the, the state government social procurement framework I think is starting to be quite game-changing mm, for the social mm. enterprise sector, particularly those who can scale quite rapidly and, and get some of that contract work. Um, so I think we're, we're starting to see some, you know, some greater speed happening and we're starting to see um, some real momentum, but it's still lumpy it's still frustrating it's still you know I, I, there's still many things that kind of keep me awake at night worrying about but do I think um that this next decade is exciting hell yeah you know there's so much that we can do and if I look around you know one of my absolutely favorite enterprises is series mm. in Brunswick you know an amazing environmental enterprise you know they're they're the kind of enterprise that just they've been around for nearly 40 years they you know they are just they they're just there you know year on year out just doing amazing things in their part of the community when i look at how beloved they are and how integrated and how critical they are to their local community to exist i'd love to think that in you know in 40 years street might hold that same preciousness oh, to the yeah. community it's embedded in whether or not that's collingwood or mm. you know somewhere else in in melbourne um and 
And I think it's not until, you know, these enterprises are part of every part of our lives. Um, it's where we go to share stories. It's where we go to meet. It's where we go to to buy the things that are essential mm. for our lives. It's where we go to tell ourselves the stories of who we are as people and mm. what we want the future to be. And so I'm interested in where do we go, you know, where do we currently go? Where are we our best humans? And I think we need places to escape to to be a, to be our best selves. And I think social enterprise really has a place to play, you know, in making us our best selves. Yes, absolutely. And certainly probably I'm a better version of myself at Ceres than Coles. So hopefully <laughs> we see that more and more integrated. Um, where can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Probably our website is an obvious one. So street.com.au, um, spelt street, uh, S-T-R-E-A-T, as in eat on the street. Um, we're just about to put up on our website um, a whole heap of kind of research that we've been involved in. I think we've done – I think we've been part now – I think it's nearly 90 different research studies with universities over the years. Wow. Um, and not just universities but, but – um, other bodies as well. And so we're in our 10th year, one of the things that we're doing is starting to kind of amass all of that learning and and um, share it. So very, very shortly, there'll be a part on our website, which is essentially a lot of the, the research that we've been involved in over that decade. Um, and that's anywhere in, you know, hard lessons we've learned in impact investment through to, you know, working with the young people that we do through to you know, building social enterprise models. So it's quite a it's quite a varied um, piece of kind of research that we've been you know, mm-hmm. research we've been part of. Um, so our website is probably the obvious place to start. Um, and obviously, if anyone you know is living within Melbourne, we would love to have people come and visit us. There's nowhere better to, to go, I think, to come to to our Cromwell Street oh, side in Collingwood. A, absolute uh, haven. Um, one of the things that was really important to us is that we built the site so you could see the different parts of our business model yep. at work. Yep. We wanted to create a site that was dignified and respectful if mm. you were a young person. You know, we weren't creating a zoo, but mm. we still wanted you as the customer to be able to see where your bread was being baked, where your coffee was being roasted. You know, you could see young people at work in all the different parts of our enterprise, but still, you know, still feel like, you know, you feel like you're part of it. You know, we want it. you to really, really feel like you're I part of like who we are. The inside was on the outside and that's awesome. what I wanted. So the DNA and everything was yeah. there. Yeah, beautiful. That, yeah. That's a really lovely way of putting it. And, yeah. and the other thing that was really critical for us is that we – we built a site where you know we weren't turning the tables over fast and rushing you out yep. to you know to to get you out of the, the cafe. We wanted you to be able to dwell. We wanted you to be able to sit in the garden, lie in a hammock and read your book. To come with your you know your dogs and your kids and your friends and, and linger. And I think you know I think it's when we when we're in places that allow us to slow down, to reflect, to be thoughtful to think about kind of who we are in relation to, you know, the planet and the people around us. It's it's those moments of reflection, I think, that kind of give us a little moment to to hopefully, you know, want to be better, you know, wake up tomorrow when we be better tomorrow than we are today. What a great way to end. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your wisdom tonight. Absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player. Why not share the podcast with a friend? You could also leave us a five-star review in your podcast player. 
You may also want to join us for one of our regular live podcasts or to become a show sponsor. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook.